advocates against pandemic school closures have been ringing the alarm for some time now. They were all but ignored two years ago, but the tide is now starting to turn, with mainstream media outlets reporting on the impacts of these closures on children. My guest today has been speaking out about these policies since the beginning. And he recently published a powerful paper arguing that extended school closures were in fact a moral catastrophe and one that we must ensure never happens again. Shamik Dasgupta is an associate professor of philosophy at the University of California, Berkeley. I'm thrilled to be joined by Shamik Dasgupta. That's today on Lean Out. Shamik, welcome to Lean Out. Thanks. Thanks very much for having me. It's great to be here. It's so nice to have you on today. So let's start here. Set this up for us. Give us a snapshot. How widespread and extended were school closures in the United States and in your hometown of Berkeley? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, there's a lot of variation around the country uh, in terms of how extended the school closures were. Um, In my hometown of Berkeley, the school closures began in uh, March 2020, the 13th of March, to be specific. And for middle and high schools, they didn't reopen until the end of August 2021. So we're talking, uh, you know, almost 1.5 years of school closures there. And one thing to keep in mind as well is that it wasn't just that the schools were shut for that period of time. It was also that the remote instruction that was being offered during that time was only about 50% of the regular instructional hours. Um, I think that's quite a key component that often gets missed in conversations about school closures. So even if remote learning was as effective as in-person learning, which I think we now know it's not, the closures also just included this dramatic reduction of instructional hours. Um, Now that was the situation in my hometown of Berkeley, very similar situations occurred throughout districts all across the West Coast, states of California, Oregon, uh, and Washington. And then also in other Democratic controlled states on the East Coast, including New York, Illinois had very long school closures as well. So so it it was pretty widespread in those kind of states. Obviously, I think, as we all know, um, not every state, not every region of the country kept their schools closed for, for that long. So there's a lot of variation. But the but the extended school closures that I'm talking about, they were very widespread in the states just mentioned. I mean, in California alone, um, upwards of 2 million children were affected uh, mm-hmm. by closures of that, of that kind. So they're very significant indeed. Mm-hmm. And I had mentioned to you over email, I live in Toronto in Ontario. Our province has had the most weeks out of class of anywhere in Canada, 28 weeks in total with four mass closures. Um, what do we know about how other countries in the world handled these school closures? Yeah, well, again, lots and lots of vari- variation. Um, I think it's pretty well publicized that Sweden took it a very unique strategy of, of not closing its elementary schools at all, uh, not even in the very early stages uh, of the pandemic. Um, other no- Northern European countries were similar. Denmark, I believe, closed their elementary schools for three weeks then reopened them and didn't shut them again at all. A place like the UK was a little different. It, it, it implemented more school closures than the other Northern European 
uh, countries, but even there, their closures were just directed at controlling surges. So they had started reopening by May 2020. Uh, and then they had another they had another closure, I think in January and February of 2021 during that winter surge. But they were using the, the school closures as a sort of targeted implement just when there was surges occurring. They were opening all, all the time in between. And I should also add that while they were closed in the UK, there was uh, there was no, none of this reduction in instructional hours. Hmm. Um, I, I, you can hear that I have a British accent, so I have some connection to this with my nephews who were who were at school for most of the 2021 school year and who were receiving you know a full school day by Zoom during those two months that they had a uh, a targeted closure during the winter. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the situation in Europe. In the rest of the world, I mean, unfortunately, extended school closures even longer than the ones we experienced in um, in California. Uh, unfortunately, they occurred in places like India. Unfortunately, had very very long closures. Um, I think almost two years. Uh, a lot of their schools were closed, and that that's affecting that affected a quarter of a billion school children, um, wow. many of whom didn't even have any uh, access to the internet. So, I mean, that that's like a whole other kettle of fish, and. Mm-hmm. and a tragedy on another scale, I think, is unfolding there. It's, it's, it's quite remarkable. I, I want to get into your, your main argument from the paper in a moment, which is very striking. But before we get to that, tell me a little bit about your positionality here. Why is this something you felt compelled to tackle? And why are you speaking you know, specifically to progressives here? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I suppose there were two... Well, well I should start out by saying, well, you asked me my position. I... I identify as a progressive. I identify as a, as a left-wing progressive. That's the political the political group that I've uh, that I've identified with for my entire life. Um, I was raised in a in a socialist family in, in the UK. And when these extended closures started to unfold, I suppose I had two two important reactions. One is that they struck me as being very obviously, a complete policy disaster, like one of the biggest policy disasters uh, that I can remember you know, in the last couple of decades, at least. Um, when we can talk more, I said maybe later on about you know why it was so disastrous, but but it struck me as pretty clear that my political group, the political group that I identified with, was um, implementing just a really really terrible policy. Um, and then, but the second reason was I also noticed that. There was very, very low tolerance for any dissenting opinion mm. amongst the left on this issue. I mean, I suppose it, that may not be surprising. Often within any political group, there's a certain degree of intolerance for dissent. But I think it was especially pronounced during the um, during the pandemic. I mean, it's easy to forget, I think, how politically charged things were in the run up to the 2020 election. Yes. Um, and remember, Trump had you know, they had just been in the impeachment proceedings in the House right before the pandemic hit. And so we were in this political climate where I think many people on the left were just very, very concerned about a second Trump term. And I was concerned with them uh, too about that. I think a lot of leftists considered it even an existential threat, the idea of a second Trump term. And so in that kind of climate, I think the idea of having a sort of open discussion about whether we were making a mistake, especially because Republican controlled areas were doing things very differently and opening up their schools so much quicker. I think the idea of even entertaining 
the possibility that we were making a big mistake was just not tolerated at all. And that combination of just enacting a terrible policy and having very little tolerance for uh, dissenting views, that just struck me as a very, very worrying situation. And I almost felt like in, in, in a situation like that, I feel like people within that political group have a certain responsibility mm. to speak up and to say, look, I think we've uh, we've gone astray somehow here, uh, maybe more responsibility than people in a different political group. So that's sort of, I think, what moved me to, to try and start saying, speaking out. This paper argues that that the school closures were a moral catastrophe. How do right. you define that in, in this context? It's the way I define it is that it's not only something that's uh, that it's wrong. It's a moral mistake. It's it's a um, it's an action that produces moral harms in people. It's, so it's it's morally wrong. But more than that, it's morally wrong of a, and serious enough, with serious enough bad negative consequences that we really have an obligation to learn from the mistake and ensure that it never happens again. So it's not just like a moral a moral um a moral crime of of a minor kind like i don't know stealing five dollars from from someone uh which maybe we can see it's morally wrong but like okay it's not the biggest deal in the world in this case we really do need to reflect on the mistake and make sure it never happens again just because of the the magnitude of the uh, bad effects that it has had and so you part of how you go into this paper is a thought experiment a premise right. and so explain what that is for everyone well yeah so i mean the, the core idea behind the arguments is is really that the closures the school closures that we had the extended ones were an untested intervention um so you know there are many interventions available to us when trying to deal with a pandemic and in this case an extended closure was completely untested. There had been no experimental or observational evidence or data to show us that they'd be effective in controlling the pandemic, nor was there any direct evidence or uh, data about the harmful effects they might have. It's completely untested. And moreover, there was a lot of indirect evidence that we could extrapolate from prior closures, from prior influenza outbreaks, and so on. Um, a lot of evidence like that, that, that we could use to predict that they would have very bad effects on children and would have very little effect on the pandemic. So the situation was untested intervention. We have tons of reasons to think it's not going to be doing much good and is going to do a lot of harm. And yet we forced it upon children without their consent. And the idea behind the paper was that we would never in our right mind support an intervention like that in in you know with such a high risk low reward profile uh, without testing it first and so to really bring that idea out that we would really never do this in a, in any other uh context i use this thought experiment that you mentioned of which goes as follows i think as you probably know um by april 2020 pfizer and moderna had both developed their vaccines and they were starting clinical trials and clinical trials are important because it's a way of testing what this intervention is going to do. You want to test that it's going to be safe for people, and you want to test that it's going to actually have a positive effect on the pandemic. So the thought experiment says, look, let's imagine a third company comes along in April 2020 and says, look, we have a vaccine too. Uh, but we imagine in this thought experiment that their vaccine isn't really a vaccine. It's just a chemical that almost certainly has no effect on COVID-19 at all. 
And secondly, is known to produce harmful effects in children. It's known to cause learning problems. It's known to cause mental health problems in children. So they have this chemical with these properties. We know it's going to harm the children, and we know it's going to do very little to control the pandemic. Now, suppose this company says, look, we don't want to do clinical trials. Unlike Moderna and, and, and Pfizer, we just want to go ahead and forcibly inject every school-aged children, uh, every school-aged child in this country with this chemical, with this untested chemical. I think we can all agree that that would be absolutely heinous and that we would never dream of supporting a policy like that. Like that. And the argument in, in the paper is that extended closures were no different from that. It was an untested intervention that we had plenty of reason to think would be ineffective at controlling the pandemic, very harmful for children. And we went ahead and implemented it anyway without children's consent. Wow. So let's unpack that a little bit. I mean, as you say, extended school closures are an unprecedented intervention. You, know, you point right. out in the paper prior to 2020, no large scale studies on them. What, if anything, do we know about the effectiveness of school closures in reducing negative health outcomes at a population level? Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, that, that's a great question. That's really sort of at the crux of uh, a lot of uh, of the argument is 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 the idea that they were actually very ineffective, but it's to to see why they're ineffective. It's actually very important to to get clear on sort of what kind of data or evidence is relevant to assessing the efficacy of, of a school closure. So, for example, at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, around sort of April May twenty twenty when a lot of regions around the world, like specifically in, in Northern Europe, were opening up their schools, uh, there was a lot of data and a lot of reporting about the question as to whether transmission is occurring within school settings. And so, of course, some transmission was seen in a school setting. That's not surprising, which made a lot of people conclude, aha, look, you send kids to school, there'll be transmission. Therefore, if we close the schools, we'll reduce the amount of COVID transmission. And it's really important to see that that's just fallacious reasoning, because even if there is COVID-19 transmission within a school setting, even if it's rampant, even if there's a lot of COVID-19 transmission in a school setting, it may be that even more transmission occurs when you close schools. I mean, this is just the sort of obvious point that by closing schools, you don't eliminate all the children. The children are still there. And after a while, once the closure goes on for long enough, you know, you might be able to keep them at home for a couple of weeks. But after that, they're going to start finding other ways to socialize. They're going to mm -hmm. start forming learning pods. And as I think we all sort of experienced during the pandemic, you try and, and set up a pod, but, you know, the pod's pretty leaky. And if every family <laughs> has, has a few leaks, you end up with not much of a pod uh, at all. And so the possibility that, that everyone, I think, overlooked at that beginning stage when they were just looking at transmission within schools is that it's, it's uh, perfectly possible that by keeping kids out of school, there is either just as much transmission going on, it's just occurring outside the school setting. It's even possible that there's more transmission being driven by kids if, for example, they're socializing with different groups of people every day. You know, one thing about, well, especially an elementary school setting, is you've got the same group of kids coming together every day. If alternative to that, you have a situation where different kids are socializing or potting with different kids on different days, it could even be that closing the schools had a negative effect on the pandemic. I mean, that is caused more transmission mm -hmm. than, uh, than you would have seen if you just sent them to school. 
So the kind of evidence, so this is all just, sorry, a long-winded way of saying that the kind of evidence we need is not just to look at inside schools and to see what's going on in a school setting. We need to look, as you said, actually, at a population level. We need to look, we, we need to compare regions that kept their schools open with regions that um, kept their schools closed for a very long period of time um, and have a look and compare their COVID-19 outcomes. You know, you can look at death rates, hospitalization rates, transmission rates, whatever kind of outcome you're interested in. You compare them across those districts and try and control for all the confounding factors that you know could obviously play a role like, like demographics and so on and so forth. There's been a number of studies that have done that and they found um, no measurable effect of e extended school closures on the pandemic. So that's to say that when you compare the average school district that kept schools closed for a year or a year and a half, and you compare that with the average school district that opened up their schools, say in, in summer of 2020, there is no measurable difference between their uh, COVID-19 outcomes. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're beginning to get reporting now on the harms to children. But what, what do we know at this stage about what extended school closures do to children? Yeah, um, well, I mean, it's yeah, it's undeniable now that kids have suffered an enormous amount um, due to these extended closures. I think every every week, it seems there's a new a new report coming out measuring just the extent in which um, in which they've suffered. Uh, I think. Numerous studies actually have found that those students who missed anywhere between half to the whole of the 2020-21 school year ended up losing somewhere between half to a year, half a year to a year of math and reading learning. So that's to say that I mean, another way of putting that is to say online learning was really not doing very much at all. It's almost as if they just weren't in school at all. Um, it, there's also a report that came out early, earlier this summer that those losses are dramatically more pronounced in high poverty schools. Mm. So this is the kind of, it's not just that kids were suffering, all the kids who experienced this suffered, but it's that the suffering was disproportionately focused on or experienced by high poverty children. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe that this week actually a report came out claiming that two decades worth of progress in math and reading have just been wiped out two decades worth of progress have been wiped out. So that's a sort of a, an indication of the extent to which these um, extended closures have had an impact, a very negative impact on educational outcomes. And it's maybe just worth emphasizing um, to your listeners that of course, it's not just education that we care about. I mean, we care about education because we think a good education is gonna lead to better life outcomes down the road. And, and there's a ton of uh, research that was done pre-pandemic on, you know, questions like, suppose a child misses out on a year of education. What effect does that have on their lifetime earnings, for example? And um, there was actually a recent review, a literature review that's uh, surveyed um, over a thousand studies on that question. Um, and they find that on average, losing a year of education results in a 9% de decrease in one's lifetime earnings. And I know I know some listeners might find a sort of focus on financial financial metrics to be slightly crass, but just you know remember that financial metrics map onto other metrics that you might care more about. So, you know, things like health outcomes correlate with um mm -hmm. with earnings for better or for worse. I wish that were not the case, but unfortunately 
it is the case. And so a 9% decrease in lifetime earnings really is going to have uh, a very pronounced effect on these on the lives of these children. Mm-hmm. I want to spend just a moment on how this was allowed to happen. So the criticism I hear a lot in, in private and in people who email me from parents is that basically what we did is we sacrificed the children's needs to cater to adult fears and particularly to the fears of the teachers. Is that a fair, does does that argument have merit, do you think? I think there is some, I think that's some, there is something to that, um, to that idea. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, certainly that's an idea that's, that's been floated around and yeah, I think there's um, a fair bit of truth to it. If the question is those sort of, in a way sort of mechanistically, how did, what were the political structures responsible for allowing that kind of idea to rule the day? Uh, then I think we need to dig a little a little bit deeper um, because because I don't think it was inevitable that even if there was that idea floating around, even if the you know people were uh, there was high levels of fear, and even if people did have this inclination to sacrifice the well-being of children to to placate parental fears, how, how did that idea get translated into actual policy? Mm. Um, that I think is a much more difficult question to answer, but I think it's actually the more, well, to my mind, it's the more important question because I'm, I'm sort of not so interested in, you know, blaming and shaming people. It was a mm-hmm. difficult time. I'm, I'm more interested in trying to make sure it never happens again. And so I'm quite interested in figuring out what were the political structures that allowed this fear to translate itself into harming children. And this is, I say something about in this in the paper, I have to say it's the most speculative part of the, of the paper. And I think there'll be a lot of research over the coming years to try and really figure out what the causal, the causal mechanisms were that led to this kind of policy. But I did speculate about what the reasons were around where I live, around in Berkeley, California, just based on my experience trying to advocate for opening the schools. So I mean, one thing I haven't said is that, you know, I, I spent most of the 20. 21 school year um, advocating in Berkeley. And mm. um, you're a parent yourself, right? I'm a parent myself. I have two children in the in the public school system here. Uh, so I was spending an inordinate amount of time trying to get to the bottom of what was stopping these schools from opening. And based on those experiences, my speculation is that there were three main factors um, that led to this. Decentralization, uh, the teacher unionization, and political tribalism. So I'll say a little bit about mm-hmm. what I mean by those, if, 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 if I may. So start with decentralization. I think the way that reopening was um, organized in California um, was as follows. Once a county um, had COVID, COVID metrics that satisfied certain conditions, the county was permitted by the state to open up various sectors. And then with respect to schools, what the county would do is then pass on that permission to each local school district. Um, But the really important thing to note is that these were just permissions. So the state was not mandating the county to open and nor was the county mandating a school district to open. They were just saying, you can if you want. So that's what I mean by decentralization. And the effect of decentralization then was that the decision of whether to reopen was being made by each school district. Now, some school districts are pretty small. I mean, I mean, our school district is a moderate size, it's 10,000 
uh, students, but it's not the kind of organization that has its own public health advisors. Okay, so immediately by decentralizing the decision down to the school district, what that did is remove the decision from the realm of public health, because right? there were no public health officials at that level, and put and it put that decision then in the hands of politics. Mm. That was the first, I think that was like the first uh, sort of factor that explains a lot of what happened in, in California. Each local district was trying to figure this out based on its own local political circumstance. The second factor was uh, were, the, were the teachers' unions. So teachers' union, it's pretty well known that they, well, sorry, I should say that the, the way this panned out was that because the school district started the year off in remote learning, Opening the schools in, so, so um, sorry, I forgot to say, Berkeley uh, Unified School District received its permission to open in um, October 2020. But because the school year had already begun by then in a remote setting, opening the schools would count as a um, change in the, in the teacher's contract. So it had to be negotiated with the teacher's union. So the teacher's union was then in a very, very powerful position to kind of dictate the terms under which reopen, reopening would occur. And they could effectively just make up their own metrics. So for example, at a time when um, the state of California was starting to urge districts to open their elementary schools when case caseloads were, I think, less than 25 per 100,000 uh, population, um, the local union was saying, we're not going to open until the, the caseload is less than four cases per 100,000. So that's a big difference, the difference between 25 and 4. Wow. Mm -hmm. But they were in a position to just say, this, these are our conditions, and, and therefore hold up the reopening process. So once you've got decentralization, and then once you've got the teachers' union saying, we're not going to go back until very, very strict conditions are met, immediately the default is just to stay closed. Now, that, that's the first two factors. The third factor is, is political tribalism. Because just because the default is to stay closed doesn't mean that that can't be overcome. If there was enough local opposition to these extended closures, which in fact you saw in, in Republican districts in, in, in California, then there'd be an incentive by the school board who are elected uh, officials. They'd have a sort of electoral incentive to reopen and to push back against what the teachers unions were, uh, were demanding. But given the kind of highly politicized uh, environment that we were in that I was mentioning earlier, you know, especially in the run up to the 2020 election, to speak out against extended closures was almost to mark yourself as not a part of the left wing team mm -hmm. and to not be a part of the left wing team in the run up to uh, an election where Trump was running for a second term was to essentially say, I'm not part of your tribe anymore. Or at least that's the way it was kind of interpreted. Yes. So there was a tremendous incentive for people just to stay quiet and to toe the party line. And so as a result, there was just zero incentive put upon local school boards to push back against the teachers' union's demands. And so extended closures came to be. Now, so that, that's my little potted explanation as to what happened in, um, in Berkeley, California, at least, and, and in sort of similar districts around this state. I, should, I just want to emphasize again, this is just my speculations based upon the kind of roadblocks that we were bumping up against as we were you know, trying to get these schools open again. Um, and I'm sure there'll be more work done on this in, in the future 
and I'm happy to be corrected. But that's my explanation, the best explanation I can come up with at the moment. Mm. So interesting. And I, I want to close on this. Returning to where we started, the idea of debate, of open debate, mm. of dissent, and how um, how difficult that was to find at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, I was working in newsrooms at that time, and I certainly saw way less debate than I would have anticipated for for a news event of that magnitude, and you know, school closures particularly. Um, but the tide does seem to have turned a little bit here. We we have the New York Times, as you mentioned, acknowledging learning loss, uh, particularly on marginalized populations. A few days ago, there was a CNN op-ed from Jill Filipovich saying progressives yes. can look squarely at the harms that come from our own policies and ask ourselves what we can learn and how we might ameliorate some of these ill effects. You've been saying this for a while. You have taken heat on it. On Twitter, I, I've also seen people saying your paper was incredibly brave. What has the response been overall to your paper? Yeah, um, it, the response has been um, uh, very, very positive. I mean, there was a gr- really, uh, really great uptake um, on Twitter, which was which was really uh, nice to see. Um, and it, it's interesting. I mean, I think you're absolutely right that the tide is turning. That that when I started being outspoken about this issue. Um, in my local community back in the sort of summer fall of 2020, I received a huge amount of pushback from not only from other people in, in Berkeley, but also from, from very close friends as well. Just a very, very fierce pushback, uh, insisting that this was the right policy. And interestingly, I'm hearing none of that anymore. So even from people who I think, you know, <laughs> even from people who are very vocally uh, against what I was saying back in summer 2020, they just, when this paper came out and there was you know it's being amplified over social media, they were just saying nothing much at all. They've stopped sort of trying to engage. I haven't heard anyone recently actually defend the idea that this was a good idea, that these wow. exposures are a good idea. And I mean, it's a little it's a little frustrating that these people have just sort of gone silent on it and aren't sort of being more upfront about, hey, we made a mistake. And, and that's why I think Jill's paper, uh, article that you just mentioned is, is really important, because I think it's important that they 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 have a reckoning with themselves about what, what happened. Um, but it's a start. I think that the fact that I'm not hearing anyone who's willing to put their hands up and say, oh, yeah, no, we did the right thing. Uh, that's a good sign. That's a that's a good start, and hopefully the next step will be a conversation about about how to rectify the damage. Um, but I think I mean going back to what you said about about open discussion. I mean I think sort of zooming out a bit and thinking about what are the sort of the general lessons or morals of this episode that I've uh, that I've taken up. Is one of the general morals that's you know more general than just COVID nineteen itself is I think just the utmost importance of having communities and discussion spaces that are tolerant of open discussion. This strikes me as just a fundamental uh, a fundamental value that we really, really need to protect. Um, you know as a university professor, I'm uh, you know I'm very uh, awake to that at the moment um, on campus. I really want uh, our campus to be a place where dissenting opinions are heard and even welcomed, not just because you want to be fair and give other people a chance to express their opinion. That's, of course, one reason, but also because it makes your own views better. Right? 
when someone else has a different perspective on something and challenges you on your own view, that's an opportunity for you to make your own view ever more uh, strong, stronger, more evidence-based. And so I think we all benefit. Everyone benefits from living in and participating in, in communities where open discussion and dissent is not only allowed, but encouraged. And so, uh, yeah, uh, my, I think that's one of the sort of big general take-home messages for me from this episode. Mm. Well, thank you so much. I, uh, I was really pleased to see your paper. I found it really interesting. And thank you for taking the time to come and talk about it today. Well, thank you very much for having me. Really appreciate it. Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. <laughs>